0: Hello, and welcome to the second episode of season four of Law and Candor, the podcast fully devoted to pursuing the legal technology revolution. I'm Rob Hellowell, and here, as always, with my co-host, Bill Mariano. Well, before we get into introducing our guest speaker and topic, I think we must first discuss our favorite part of the show,
1: Sightings of Radical Brilliance. brilliance. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. We bring you our thoughts on the latest technology or innovation that we're seeing in the legal space.
2: Yeah, today, uh, interesting, we, we have the U.S. House of Representatives approved remote voting, and though they didn't approve the technology they're going to do it with yet, it's interesting because it's the first time ever that the uh, U.S. Congress has approved remote voting typically it, it you know requires that you be there in person the Senate of course is still doing it in person but the House uh, you know obviously this is a this is an effect uh, uh, you know caused by uh, COVID-19 you got 435 members many of them in their 60s and 70s and 80s they're they're trying to make it possible to continue the business of the country without necessarily putting themselves at risk and you know I mean I'm all for it why not I you know th- nothing makes me crazier then you, when when people miss a vote because they're running for president or they're running for governor in their state and they're doing things in it I mean there's really no reason this day and age with technology being what it is that they shouldn't have some sort of voting remotely so that every representative that we elect to represent our view can cast a vote regardless of whether or not they have their own agenda. And this is just COVID is just sort of making sure that that happens. And it's only temporary, but I think it's going to it might lead to a, to a, a, a dramatic change going forward. Irrespective of COVID nineteen. Well, and what's
0: kind of interesting about it is that it's almost like a hybrid. It's it's not like a pure electronic vote, but it would it would be a way that you could remotely, I guess, communicate your vote to someone else who would then physically, you know, go and you know register the vote, which you know is interesting and maybe that's just an interim step or something. But but we're seeing stuff like this more often. I mean, I, I would have never guessed that you know in in the context of a congressional hearing that you would see people you know, testifying using Zoom and, and other, you know, video conferencing technology. This is, again, it's just, you know, another way that, you know, COVID-19 is really having, you know, it, it's it's resulting in
2: real change. Well, and it's, it's funny, right? Because what we're seeing is steps being taken to help the country move along in a business as usual manner, but acknowledging that COVID-19 has had this effect. The interesting thing is how many of these uh steps that are put in place in this case by congress but in other businesses that we and we've talked about on this program uh that are, that are putting things in place to combat with COVID 19 that will actually lead to change beyond COVID being cured um and and here it could be that you know when a senator or a congressman is running for president in four or eight years that they can vote remotely when you know frankly these representatives spend more wa- more time in washington dc than they spend in their local home district right? Especially those that live far away across the country. You know, some of these people could spend more time in their district with their uh, constituents um, when this is all over uh, and not have to be in D.C. five days a week for 30 weeks a year. Um, so, I look, I, I think that it's, it's, it's prudent to do now, uh, but I also would be interested to watch this space to see if it leads to a more uh, permanent Uh, a solution in place for justifiable absences from D.C.
0: I agree. I think, you know, you know that change is real when even Congress has to change something. So clearly this is uh, this
2: is something that (laughs) is going to stay with us. Yeah, I, I think this is um, this is one of those watch this space moments. Now we're gonna get to the, we're gonna cut over to an interview that we did with Tracy Helenberger of uh, Baker Bots, and this is one of our favorite. We do this every season. This MythBusters, where we 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 start to throw things at Tracy. In this case, it's MythBusters as it relates to managed services. Anyway, check it out. I, I think you, you're really gonna like Tracy's take on this stuff. Tracy's at Baker Bots. She did a great job. Yeah, I agree. This is a great episode. As we mentioned in the lead up to this, we are so, so excited about the topic and our guest today, uh, Tracy Hallenberger from Baker BakerBots. Tracy, can you please introduce yourself before we ask you, just a, a barrage you with questions? We'd like to have our audience at least know who's getting barraged with questions.
1: Sure thing, Bill. Thank you. So I'm Tracy Hallenberger. I am the chief knowledge officer at Baker Bots and actually started my career on the practice side of the firm as a litigation paralegal and my portfolio today includes um, our business and practice systems team, records and information governance, business intake and conflicts, library and research services. And the most recent add to my portfolio is what we call our practice solutions group. And so those are our teams who are really embedded with our practices. And where we started is litigation. And my connection to managed services is that one of our first significant achievements of that group was to move um, our e-discovery services to a managed service um, arrangement.
0: Great, and Tracy, I know you've been a long-time super fan of the podcast, uh, so you'll <laughs> know that these myth, myth-busting sessions are one of our favorites. Maybe just to kind of get the conversation started at you know the ten-thousand-foot level, what are what are some of the top myths that you say you know are associated with managed services?
1: Sure. So I would say, like uh, looking at the organization that I'm with, Baker Bots I think some of the myths that uh, we knew were out there and started hearing about, you know, questions as we let people know we were looking at um, identifying a managed services provider, uh, were sort of concerns about quality, because of course no one is ever going to be able to do things as well as we at Baker Bots can do ourselves. Um, concerns about cost, is it actually going to be more expensive to have someone else do it than have our internal folks do the work? And then also just, are we going to, are our lawyers going to experience a lower level or less personalized level of service? I would say those are probably the, the three biggest we heard about and knew that we would need to overcome.
2: So, all right. So let's break. Let's start to break those down a little bit. Um, let's start with the myth around lesser quality because I've I've heard that too. Uh, just curious uh, if you think that's a myth. Is a, is that something that you've uh, experienced as a, as a myth or is it something that's got some truth to it?
1: So I would, uh, it's, it's definitely a myth, it's, it's just um, not true. In, in our um, situation, I mean, I would say we went from okay quality to significantly enhanced quality because when we went to the managed services arrangement, we're sort of like, you know, kind of like marshaling all of our resources in one direction. We're able to enter into an agreement that it significantly boosted the technology stack that we were able to offer um, our lawyers. And then our personnel, I mean, we have a very lean team and our personnel, which really feels like an extension of ne- of us now, really allowed us to improve our service level offerings in terms of the quality of the services, you know, the volume that we can support in our, in our turnaround time. So it is, is absolutely a myth.
0: And Tracy, what were kind of, what were some of the metrics that we're using internally to, to measure quality?
1: Well, I mean, I would say, and this isn't directly a measurement of quality, but I I would say that just the increase in volume of cases that are coming, that we're taking in with our team and supporting our our MATTER teams was a significant indicator to us of they're getting, you know, they're satisfied with the service, they're getting the quality that they need. Before we had this arrangement, we were, I've I've often described our setup, it was a little bit of a wild, wild west. We had an in-house kind of on-prem offering but um, because the quality wasn't necessarily in terms of the technology available and what, ha- what have you, wasn't necessarily where it needed to be. A lot of our lawyers just went out and they hired whichever e-discovery provider they wanted to hire. And so now that we have more and more folks coming to the centralized offering, it's anecdotal, but it tells me that they wouldn't be coming if it wasn't better than what they were experiencing before.
0: No, that that makes sense. I think, you know, one of the other kind of key myths out there is around expense and that, you know, a managed service offering is going to be a lot more expensive than, you know, what the firm's doing internally. Could you just share a little bit about about your experience with that myth?
1: Sure. Well, in a, in addition to just getting out from under the overhead of an on-prem system, I mean, that alone kind of made us feel 10 years younger. But I mean, it is a myth and it certainly was a myth for us because by negotiating with one provider, we're really able to achieve economies of scale in terms of kind of putting all of our eggs in one basket. I mean, we have sort of the purchasing power to get a good deal that allowed us to, what we did is we developed a very simplified and predictable pricing arrangement. So when we're talking to matter teams, we're able to tell them like, Here's a very simplified pricing structure that you could easily explain to your clients or we can do it for you if you'd like. But the best thing about it is what we hear from clients day in and day out is what they, I mean, they want good deals, they want good prices, but they also want predictability. They don't like surprises. And so by going to this managed services arrangement, we kind of knew what we were gonna be spending, we're able to build a pricing model that we were able to prove out. And I would say the best indicator that it's working is that we haven't gotten a lot of pushback from our lawyers or clients. Um, our lawyers are using it. You know, we are not hearing like, well, oh, I can't use you because you're just too expensive. And just our experience of these costs are going on to client bills and we're successfully collecting them. I mean, we have 2019 was our first full year um, on this new arrangement. And we we've often said among our e-discovery team, if we had been a startup, we would have said, hey, we had a really awesome first year. And it's because all of these things worked, um, we're getting repeat business. We're, you know, have happy clients who are, are paying for the services.
2: And so what about uh, the third one you mentioned with this lower, like lawyers sort of objecting to it in the beginning, because they think that maybe they'll get a lower, maybe less personal, uh, uh, service level. And and can you talk about that a little bit and, and how that sort of distinguishes from the, from the, the quality point that you had mentioned earlier?
1: So I would say that there was a concern and, you know, I think that there was lawyer concerns, but there were also concerns on our staff. Like, okay, right now, if a lawyer calls me and asks me to do X, Y, Z, I have the ability, like on our on-prem system, I have the ability to do this. And am I going to have the ability to do that when we're with the managed services provider? And so it was that fear that, okay, am I not, if I'm the lawyer, I'm not going to be able to get this person to do exactly what I want, you know, practically, you know, with a snap of a finger, you know, overnight or within an hour, you know, like, how is that all going to work? And I would say a couple of things. One of the things when we were mapping out what our workflows were going to look like and kind of building our playbooks, we did identify some things that probably weren't best practices. And so that allowed, you know, so so sort of getting rid of those because some of those really, hey, I need this quick turn or I need, you know, this like specialized service. Sometimes it was, well, we know that's what you're asking for, but actually there are some risks, and let us explain to you why. So we were able to, I think, improve how we operate. Number one, but then in terms of the the fear that I'm not going to be able to be as responsive or you know sort of keep our lawyers happy, it was a complete myth. And I would say that if anything, um, you know, again that partnering with our internal folks and the Lighthouse Pod, it's it's been a force multiplier rather than something that has like made one of our internal folks feel like they were a little bit hamstrung in terms of being able to be responsive to a lawyer. It's really allowed us to be, I mean, it's, it's allowed us, like I said, to take on a lot more volume. I mean, we are getting a lot more traffic, a lot more volume to our centralized e-discovery service than we were previously. And it's because of really this arrangement allowed us to offer better technology, lent us credibility because of the service levels that we're able to achieve and and our lawyer you know our lawyers are 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 getting what they need when they need and they're meeting deadlines you know we're meeting client deadlines they're meeting production deadlines um like i said i mean we've been very very satisfied and the concern about not being able to be as responsive has just uh not you know, materialized for us. So I would definitely call that a myth too.
0: Yeah. You know, it's kind of one of one thing that's kind of related to that that I've heard people, you know, potentially objective is, is, you know, they felt that if they moved to managed services, they would lose that ability to have that more personal connection, you know, to just be able to walk down the hall and, you know, poke their head into someone's office to, to, you know, get something done if it needed to get done. Did you experience any of that, you know, in your journey?
1: So, I mean, there were probably some concerns about that, but I would say that because of the way that most of our work is done in the sort of full service model versus self-service, but it's really a partnership. So our lawyers are still starting their journey on a new matter by contacting a Baker Botts person that allows us to kind of have that high touch. And because it's the same people we're working with all of the time. I mean, we've even had some scenarios where one of our lawyers who's, you know, not paying attention necessarily to email signature blocks or whatever, didn't even recognize that, oh, this person isn't a Baker Botts person. You know, it's sort of like we're, it, it just become that woven into our fabric. I mean, what they know is they're getting like great service. And if they really do need to see a person or like talk to a Baker Botts person, we have those folks. And again, because of the way our intake process goes and everything, we're always involved from the get go and kind of monitor and shepherd things along. So they, it, like, we haven't gotten any feedback, nor do I have any concern that we would ever have a lawyer feeling like you just kind of like handed me off to this this vendor who maybe I don't really know. Like, it's not that way at all. It is a true partnership.
2: Interesting. Um, he, this is maybe my favorite. I wouldn't say it's an objection. It's one of the first things that always comes up, and I think it might have something to do with the fact that. Managed services has evolved since its inception uh, in the market, um, but one of the things I hear most, uh, you know, whether I'm talking to the partner who is, you know, the head of litigation is considering managed services, or the head of lit- head of litigation support, um, the partners will often say. I can't say managed services. It's a dirty word around here. The lit support team will think it's a, it's they'll they, it, be an uprising and a mutiny because they think what it means is we're replacing them. And you talk to the lit support people and if you say managed services, they go, that some of them, not all, will say, nope, I, I have to protect my team. Managed services is gonna put my team at risk um, and I don't want that at all. I have to be the one that sticks up for my team. I have to be the one that, that says, absolutely not. We're not doing this because my team is the only one that could deliver this. Is that fact or fiction?
1: So, fiction, so I would say, uh, I mean, you know, when you, whenever you are going to introduce change to an organization, whether it's, man, you know, any kind of change, it, people, it's human nature, you're, you're a little bit nervous. So, were, were members of our team like a little bit nervous in the beginning? Sure, they were. I mean, I was a little bit nervous in the beginning, right? I mean, it's not something we'd done before, but we knew we needed to do something to get to the next level. And so, what we did, and I think that, you know, absolutely, this should be the approach, We communicated, communicated, communicated with the team, involved them in the selection process. So, you know, we did a big RFP. We did a very, very sort of like scorched earth selection process. I mean, I think we got 30 or 40 RFPs, did multi-hour interviews with several finalists and then proof of concept and that sort of thing. And we involved our teams in all of those steps. And um, so it, it took communication and management. But it's definitely doable. And I would say, again, our lit support team now is getting more work. Our e-discovery lawyers and our lit support team are getting more work, are getting to do more, expand their portfolios, work with new technologies. You know, we didn't have brain space before. I mean, so it really, if you can get them over that natural human inclination to fear change, it's, I mean, it, it, it's definitely all positive. You just have to, you know, manage and communicate.
0: You know, it kind of reminds me of one. I think it's related to another objection I've heard is that and this was coming more from like the internal team's perspective, that, you know, that it was going to change the nature of their work in in a negative way. Did you experience anything like that?
1: So definitely there were questions about, is this going to change the nature of my work? Some of the things that they were doing from lawyers, like I said earlier, turned out to be like, um, upon closer inspection, that's not a best practice. That's not really the best way to fulfill that inquiry or request. So there are some things that they used to do, tasks that they're no longer performing. So has it changed the nature of their work? Yes, but I would say it's changed the nature of their work in a positive way because some of that lower value stuff that turned out to be not best practices, they're not doing, and they're getting to do more high value you know, tasks and projects and again, like I said, really expanding their portfolio in terms of the tools and technologies that they're utilizing and the solutions that they're bringing to the table. So it it has changed their work, but not in a negative
2: way. It's interesting. I, I mean, this is this has been great. If I may, I'm just going to sum up some some of these myths that we busted today. So most of the myths r- really center around quality, cost and experience. Um, and I think what, what you've explained to us is, you know, actually the quality has improved, uh, that could be because you're actually, you're revisiting everything you're working with, with, uh, a company whose core competency it is to, to, uh, to develop best practices and you can combine on what's best practices for your firm and for your clients. Um, it's actually proved to be less expensive for your, for your uh, clients ultimately, um, and it also—it sounds like it's—if uh, you work it the right way—it uh, it, it allows you to be flexible enough to have simple pricing arrangements with client, which clients ultimately love, and partners like communicating. And ultimately, even though uh, you know change can be nerve-wracking, if you manage this and communicate it effectively uh, throughout the entire process, involve the team in picking and being involved in the process to pick uh, the company that you're going to go with, and define what the managed services will look like for your firm. That that staff will actually be delivering more value add work. Um, then they will have they will be busier because more work will be coming in, uh, and it will allow them to uh, work with and deliver results with uh, new technologies that maybe they didn't have before because they have more available to them. So. I mean, if I think that summed up all, every, everything you mentioned there. And, and I got to tell you, this is, I think this will be one of our most listened to podcasts. Thank you, Tracy, so much for joining us on this. It really, really appreciated. I really think that we're going to get a lot of feedback on this episode. It was really great having you.
0: Thanks, Tracy.